Welcome to episode 31 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, now with 100% less Luther Abel. I am back from Italy, which was terrific. Food, the wine, the landscapes, the architecture, the weather, all just astonishing. We started in Rome and then headed out to Tuscany via Orvieto. In Tuscany, we saw Siena and Florence and all manner of little towns and villages in the Chianti region. We also went wine tasting, which was as hellish as it sounds. Sitting in a beautiful building, eating pecorino cheese and local sausage and trying Chianti Classicos and Super Tuscans and even some rosé. It was pure torture. But look, Someone has to do it, and I wouldn't want anyone to say that when the moment came for volunteers, I failed to step forward. My guest this week is Dr. J. Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is a professor at Stanford University Medical School, where he researches the health and well-being of vulnerable populations. He co-wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, a focused protection alternative to lockdowns. Dr. Bhattacharya has published over 160 peer-reviewed papers on medicine, epidemiology, health policy, and public health, and he holds an MD and PhD in economics earned at Stanford University. He also became something of a lightning rod in recent years as a result of many of the views he expressed during the pandemic. And so I thought, now that the pandemic is unquestionably over, I hope so, that it would be good to look back at that time and discuss what he and we learned and what he and we got right and got wrong, and to ask what, if heaven forfend we got another pandemic within our lifetimes, we should do differently next time around. So Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you for having me, Charles. Appreciate being here. So let's start at the beginning and look at the Great Barrington Declaration, which you co-wrote. What was that? What did it say? What was its purpose? How did it intersect or respond to the way that the authorities were dealing with COVID? And why did it matter so much? The Great Barrington Declaration is a, a small, short document, about a page, uh, like a you know, a, a page long, that I and Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University and Martin Kuldorf of Harvard University co-wrote on October fourth, twenty twenty. The declaration was a call for a radically different policy regarding the pandemic, and in particular, it called for an end to lockdowns. To, to not resume lockdowns. It called for opening schools. It called for a policy less driven by fear and instead called for a, a policy of focused protection of vulnerable people. It relied on basically two scientific facts, which I think everyone agrees uh, was true. I think most everyone agreed it was true back then and certainly everyone agrees is true now. 
One is that there is a huge age gradient in the risk of dying from COVID where the oldest population has a substantially thousandfold or higher rate of dying if infected than young, younger populations, especially children. And so there's this enormous age gradient in the risk of, of dying if you get COVID. At the same time, the lockdowns themselves, in particular the school closures, uh, but but you can list other measures, were causing tremendous harm to the health and well-being of, well, basically everybody. You put those two facts together and you get the Great Barrington Declaration. Focus protection of older people. We're calling for public health to engage much more creatively than it had in that focus protection effort, especially given the experience in March of 2020 where 80% of the deaths had been people over 65. And then lifting of the lockdowns, lifting of the measures. Uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, when we wrote it, tens of thousands of doctors and epidemiologists signed on to it almost immediately after we wrote it. It basically challenged the central authorities, people like Tony Fauci or Francis Collins of the National Institute of Health, challenged them because it said, look, the policies that you are representing as, as a consensus within science that, that we must do a lockdown in order to stop the, the disease from spreading, and that's really the only way to protect people. Well, in fact, that is not a consensus. There are many, many scientists who disagree with that, and they signed the Great Barrington Declaration. It, it uh, basically atta attacked the premise that uh, on which so much of the policies that we followed were, 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 were laid, which is that science says you must lock down in order to protect people, and if you disagree with us, then you are disagreeing with science itself. So four days after we wrote the declaration, the Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Sunetra Gupta, I, I think she's the premier infectious disease epidemiologists in the world at Oxford, and Martin Kuldorf at Harvard, the three of us, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, fringe epidemiologists. And then he called for a devastating takedown of the premise of the declaration, to which Tony Fauci responded a couple of days later with a hit piece article in Wired magazine, you know, that, that scientific journal. The declaration essentially was a challenge to the idea that people like Tony Fauci had the authority to speak on behalf of all scientists which is why I think they had to destroy our reputations, the people, and the, as, as well as the reputations of the people that signed it. A lot of people signed it, told me that they'd lost opportunities for grants, some lost their job, many were smeared or attacked for the act of signing the declaration. So I want to get into the retaliation, but let's talk first about why you were against the lockdowns. The case against lockdowns. Because there's more than one, I think. Early on, and I'm sure you get this thrown at you all the time, in March of 2020, you weren't sure that COVID was going to be as deadly as it ended up being. Now, if it had not been deadly, obviously the case against lockdowns would have been self-evident. We don't lock down every year because of flu. But by the time you wrote this Great Barrington Declaration, you said it was October 2020. Now, at that point... It's clear that this is killing people. The impetus, therefore, to do something was obvious, but you and your co-authors thought that the government was doing the wrong thing. You have subsequently described the lockdowns as the biggest public health mistake we've ever made. Why was it a mistake? Okay, so first let's talk about the collateral harms of the lockdown, which were entirely predictable in March of 2020. 
I just want to focus on the poor of the world, the very poorest of the world, because that I think makes the case even without going further, although we can make we can certainly go further. In early April 2020, the the World Food Program of the UN issued a, a, a warning saying that 130 million additional people would be thrown into dire food insecurity, which is their way of saying starvation, from the economic dislocations caused by the lockdown. Later that summer, the World Bank issued an estimate that 100 million people would be thrown into poverty worldwide, dire poverty, meaning $2 a day or less of income. The estimates were absolutely catastrophic about what was going to happen. And it's not just that the lockdowns happened in those poor countries. It's the the fact that we live in a globalized economy. Many of those poor countries reorganize their economies in order to fit into the global economy. So when the Western countries locked down, it was going to have downstream consequences on the poorest of the poor in the poorest parts of the world. Because those parts of the world, when you say supply chain disruptions, what you mean, the pointy end of that supply chain disruption is some poor guy selling coconuts on the street of Mumbai who now can't sell his coconuts to the you know laptop class people of, of Mumbai because they're locked down or because the industries on which the, those those richer people live have been have collapsed and then he loses his job of selling coconuts and starves or he's forced to make his decision bet- between selling his child off to some you know for for early early marriage or something or child labor or into prostitution or starving that was entirely predictable from the earliest days of the pandemic, the, of the lockdowns. The, the consequence of the lockdowns would be tremendously bad for the poorest of the world. In Western countries, the lockdowns very clearly were going to damage, uh, again, the poor and the working class and children. One early estimate, for, in particular, of the school closures, written by the editor of JAMA Pediatrics, I think in July of 2020, was that by locking down, we had cost American school children five and a half million life years. And the reason was this. There was a, a large and persuasive social science literature showing that investments in schooling have tremendously positive benefits on the lifetimes of children when you make those investments. And that short, even short interruptions in that schooling can have long lifetime negative consequences. Children who skip short periods of school live poorer, less healthy, shorter lives. And the estimate what was again, by the editor of JAMA Pediatrics, was that five and a half million life years lost from the spring lockdowns alone of the schools. People skipped cancer checking. I mean, in, in um, there's an estimate that there are a million people in Europe walking around with late stage, later stage cancer than would, uh, that should have been picked up earlier, but weren't because of the shutdown of, of hospitals and, and, and uh, primary care for checking for essential services like cancer screening. All of that, again, was predictable, and, and uh, there was a literature that was coming out in the summer of 2020, which was making, was just raising the alarm, although it wasn't getting much attention, that these kinds of skips, uh, these, these kinds of, of sort of refocusing of care away from essential services toward COVID was having, was having or was going to have uh, and is continuing to have a very del- deleterious effect on the health of populations. So that, 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 was the, that was the reasoning around why lockdowns were such a terrible idea. Which, you know, I think the evidence that's come out since has, has sort of documented that in spades in, in ways that we didn't even, you know, it, it, would, it would be almost impossible to miss if, unless, you, unless you're willfully doing so. The lockdowns also, Charlie, they, 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 they were a departure from standard pandemic management. So you mentioned the, the risk of dying 
Now, early in the pandemic, uh, I did write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that we didn't know, this is like March of 2020, we didn't know the infection fatality rate of the disease. And that was true. We did not know the infection fatality rate of disease in, in March 2020. And I didn't know it, which is why I wrote this op-ed. The op-ed ends with a call for a study, a study to measure how widespread the disease already was by early April of 2020. Because if you don't if you don't know how widespread it is, you don't know the denominator of a mortality rate. A mortality rate is the number of people that died divided by the number of people that has had the disease up to that date with, with just a little bit of modification. And, and what you have there is you, you have a, we had a lot of information in March of 2020 about the numerator, but we had almost no information about the denominator. And so I actually ran a study like this. I ran a, it's called a seroprevalence study. You look in for measures of antibodies in the population at large. We did one in Santa Clara County and another one in LA County in early April 2020. And what we found was that the infection fatality rate was in those two places, in the community at large, not inside nursing homes, where it was much higher, the death rates were higher. Um, but in the community at large, the death the, the, those two communities anyways, it was 0.2%, two out of 1,000. Similar studies were run all around the world. Some places found higher. Uh, New York City, for instance, was was higher. Uh, some places found lower. So, for instance, infection fatality rate estimates in India were considerably lower than the ones in the United States. The key thing was how old was the population. And older the population, the higher the infection fatality rate. Our study estimate of two out of a thousand in early 2020 is the middle of a hundred such studies. That's the middle estimate of 100 such studies. And it had three lessons. One is that infection fatality rate is not as high as people thought it was. It was certainly higher than the flu and certainly meant that we needed to do something serious, not just ignore it. Um, second, that the disease was already quite a bit more widespread than we'd realized. So early April 2020, after two weeks of lockdown, 4% of LA County had already had an antibody evidence of the disease. So whatever we were doing to stop the disease spread, it wasn't working. And then third, Disease control, like for diseases like this, are, are a zero-one thing. If you get it when it's the very first cases, you know, of somebody walking out of a lab and you suppress it, then you can stop it at zero. But if it's if it's if you don't stop it at zero and it spreads by aerosols very very easily, then basically it's going to go to a hundred. The best you can do in that face of that is not to lock down. The best you can do in that is identify high-risk groups work very hard to protect them. The reason is to for the delay is so that you can have better therapeutics and, and treatments for them when they do eventually face the disease, vaccines. But for the rest of the population for whom it's a low risk, the lockdowns pose a bigger risk of, uh, of to their health than the, the disease itself. And so you don't disrupt them. And certainly you don't cause panic and, and disrupt society. One more, one more data point. The, the key thing about what would have happened had we not adopted this lockdown ideology in March of 2020 is that, and, and instead I worked on protecting vulnerable older people, is that we would have changed pretty fundamentally the nature of our policies. In March of 2020, multiple locations around the world, including most famously in New York City, authorities sent COVID-infected patients into nursing homes. And the reason they did that was because the primary policy objective was protecting hospital systems, flattening the curve. And that, by the way, led to, led to countless deaths. And that's just not in New York City, but in Stockholm, in Quebec, in, in Michigan, in, in Pennsylvania, all, all of many, many places made the same mistake because of the orientation, the philosophical orientation of the response. 
If instead the focus had been protection of vulnerable people, that would have been unimaginable. Instead, those COVID-infected patients would have been sent out of the hospitals into places like the Javits Center or the Mercy Shift to convalesce, away from other high-risk people. So the disease wouldn't have spread so early into those high-risk populations. I think that the, the policy was wrong from the very beginning. The data indicated it was wrong from the very beginning. And the consequences of the policy have been devastating the poor of the world. All right. So let me ask you a question then that flows from this. And you'll correct me if I'm mischaracterizing what you're saying. But the way I think of this is that there are three main arguments against lockdowns. One is a flat libertarian argument. That is, I don't care about the consequences. You don't have the right to do this to me or to the economy. The second one is a utilitarian argument. It says, when you weigh the consequences of a lockdown they are worse than the ills that uh, one is trying to address. And the third is that lockdowns may be good or bad, but they're just the wrong tool. So what I hear you arguing, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not the flat libertarian argument, but is first a utilitarian argument that says, look at all of the harm that this caused. And in conjunction with that, a wrong tool argument that given the data that we had, the government picked the wrong option. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a libertarian. So I, I guess I wouldn't, it wouldn't be naturally to me to, to make a, a flat libertarian argument. It would be unpersuasive to me in any case, but I do think there are some ethical constraints on public health policymaking that were violated. And I don't know if you'd characterize as libertarian or something else, right? So for instance, fear mongering, asking low-risk populations to uh, adopt policies or or interventions that that harm them in the hope without sufficient evidence that if if there was going to protect anybody else. So I think there are some ethical constraints that you you potentially ought to hold against public health action regardless. Uh, I don't know if you'd call that a libertarian or not, but uh, but I I do believe in that. On the other hand, I, I completely agree with your other characterization, the characterization of the argument as, again, it's not, again, flatly utilitarian. So for instance, you might argue, for instance, that there are certain populations that benefited from lockdown, right? So I think that, for instance, you can show that the, like, the stock market went up pretty sharply, and then a certain group of people, you know, I call them laptop class folks, actually, you can see, read reports contemporaneous about, well, now they have more time to spend at home. They don't have to go to work. Uh, they don't have to drive to work and so on. And so some, at least to some extent, might, you can argue would benefit. I don't think that's, a, uh, even if that benefit were large, I don't think it was a sufficient argument to offset the harm. But, but the reason were, that I contrast that with the libertarian argument, just for clarity, is that you could see a scenario in which locking down would, given the deadliness of the disease had it had a different effect had its distributions been different had it been wiping children out for example you could see a scenario right in which the parade of horribles that you outlined were worth it to save millions of lives i mean if if you believe that lockdown can be effective in protecting certain populations I mean, I guess in principle, yes. Right. The issue, the issue, though, is I guess, I guess it comes back to that third alternative that you mentioned, Charlie, and I think that's a really important thing. I don't believe that lockdown as a tool, certainly as implementable in the West, 
uh, and I think probably you can make the case in China as well. I don't believe that lockdown as a tool actually works to protect against the spread of a highly infectious aerosolized respiratory virus. It fails because the kinds of societies in which we live are deeply unequal. And the requirements for a lockdown to protect somebody against the risk of getting a disease requires them to be able to, to be able economically, psychologically, socially to be able to live at home, to stay home and stay safe with minimal need to go outside. But in order to support that, you need a vast population working to make sure that that's, that's feasible and doable. Right. Somebody has to run the elect, you know, the electrical grid. Somebody has to like cook the food. Somebody has to deliver the groceries. Somebody has to le- to has to care for people that are sick. All of that has to get done uh, is built on top of a vast infrastructure of people. I mean, I think there was an estimate early in the pandemic that about a third of the American population works in jobs that could in principle be replaced by lockdown. It means two thirds don't, and then no- that number is certainly much lower if you go to the poorer parts of the world. So if that's true, the lockdown, at least not as, as a sustainable strategy, is possible as a way of protecting most of the population against a high, highly transmittable respiratory virus. So even if the average mortality risk was higher, but the disease had the exact same transmissibility characteristics, I don't believe a lockdown would have worked. The question then is, what do you do? I mean, of course, if that were the case, it would be a tragic, tragic thing. It already was a tragic thing from COVID alone, let alone lockdown harms. But in that case, you still do focus protection. Like that is the right ethical thing to do, is to f- identify the people who are at highest risk and then think creatively about how to protect that population while the low-risk population carries on with uh, keeping society going. Because if you don't keep society going, if you don't get civilization going, you're going to end up harming many more people, including the people that are sort of bearing the risk by keeping society going. Do you think that this lesson has been learned? And let's stipulate for the sake of argument that we are in the future going to experience a pandemic that is broadly similar, not not one that is so different that the question becomes meaningless. Do you think we've learned that lesson as a culture? No, we've not, not learned that lesson. And the evidence for that is that in the various pandemic after-action reports that I've seen, both in the United States, for instance, one written by uh, Phil Zellico, the, you know, the man who originally wrote the 9-11 Commission report, in various other places, there has been no unequivocal repudiation of lockdowns or the lockdown idea or lockdown ideology. There's been very little uh, official acknowledgement that the lockdowns actually didn't work, and there's been very little official acknowledgement that the lockdowns had tremendous harm. Now, there are some exceptions to this. So, for instance, I think many places have now concluded officially that the closure of schools was a, was a tremendous mistake. I think, uh, Charlie, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, my sense in the UK is that the politicians are fighting over themselves to, to sort of disavow the idea that they were in favor of lockdown at all, right. certainly with the Tories. That's not true in the US. Like, I've testified in the House, and it's best I can tell, the Democratic Party, or large parts of it anyway, still justify lockdowns as necessary. And their main complaint is that uh, there was misinformation afloat in the world that prevented them from having, you know, sort of more lockdown or more more uh, vaccine uh, um, uptake and so so on. So all all of that I think is still in play in the United States. Even on the Republican Party, you know, it's it's President Trump that locked down, uh, and if you hear him attack 
Governor DeSantis, who uh, who actually you locked down early in May, but then then uh, then turned around and actually apologized for the lockdowns, uh, changed the policy very very early. It's President Trump for attacking Governor DeSantis for lifting the lockdown rather than for, and actually it's just a little incoherent because sometimes he attacks him for locking down even though he was he was the, he, he made the national policy to lock down. So even inside the Republican Party, there's a what I see is st- still not yet a clear and clean decision that the lockdowns were a tremendous mistake. Although there are certainly voices there. Within the Democratic Party, you have Biden who is entirely a proponent of the lockdown. He pushed them after even after he came back, he kept, kept schools closed when he when he got into power. But on the other hand, you have a very clear and clean attack on lockdowns from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's made that a major plank in his in his in his presidential campaign. So it's going to be interesting in the United States. There's going to be a discussion, I think, within both parties about the wisdom of lockdown in the uh, in the in the primary season that's coming. To what extent were you surprised by the reaction to the Great Barrington Declaration? You noted that you and others who have prominent and prestigious positions were labeled as fringe, marginal, extremists even. You've written and talked about being censored on social media and beyond. And we've all seen this capitalized T, capitalized S, the science talk, which anyone who dissented was supposed to be in opposition to. Were you shocked by that? I wasn't surprised that there was opposition to our position. I knew that there were a considerable number of people in favor of lockdown. But, Charlie, I also knew that there were a t- tremendous number of people that were opposed to lockdown in prominent positions, like with, with you know, epidemiologists, with professors. A Nobel Prize winner signed on from Stanford, for instance, against the lockdowns. There were a lot of people I was in communication with, with credentials that were opposed to lockdown. So I knew that it was going to start a policy fight. I entirely anticipated attacks on me related to the ideas of the lock of the of the Great Barrington Declaration. What I didn't anticipate was a abuse of power by the very top scientific bureaucrats in the world. In the U.S., it was Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, uh, Rochelle Walensky, who then subsequently became the CDC director. I saw also in the U.K. people like Jeremy Farrar, who was the head of the Wellcome Trust, you know, folks from the Gates Foundation, others. They fund a tremendous amount of scientific work. And it's not just that they fund the the work. If you want to run a lab, of course, you need to get money. It's also that their, their funding conveys in the scientific world social status. So that if you want to be high up on the ladder of science of, of, of scientific scientists you really need to be able to get funding from the agencies that these that these uh, scientific bureaucrats represented such as the National Institute of Health of course these are federal uh, federally funded agencies so I didn't expect the power of the American government to come down in essentially a propaganda war to attack the Great Barrington Declaration or, or, or me in particular or others who signed it. It was entirely a surprise to me to see that they were, how much power they had over, for instance, the media in order to, to, do, to do scurrilous hit pieces on me or, or others. So for instance, Charlie Lilko is a very common trope. You can still see it now to say that the Great Barrington Declaration called for letting the virus rip. 
the first words the time I heard of that was when I saw Tony Fauci give some interview where he mischaracterized the declaration. The declaration called for focused protection of vulnerable people not letting the virus rip. And yet, the Washington Post wrote stories that said that, the New York Times wrote stories that said that, with very little attempt. I think the New York Times talked to me, and they, they essentially at one point, for once, and wrote essentially something, a propaganda piece, propping up the um, the narrative that that uh, that we wanted to let the virus strip, putting that in the mouth again of, of, of Francis Collins and Tony Fauci. Washington Post didn't even interview me about that. They just wrote, wrote piece after piece, calling me, call, essentially calling me a monster for the idea of protect of saying protecting vulnerable people. Why? This is the bit that really interests me. So, if there were billions of dollars on the line, I would absolutely instinctively understand why people in positions of authority or who had a lot to lose would bandy together and try and isolate those who might cost them the money. If we were talking here about a presidential election in which huge amounts of power were on the line in areas unrelated to COVID-19, I would grasp it. But here you're talking about essentially a difference of opinion. Was it just fear did Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and others believe so deeply that they were right and that you and the Great Barrington Declaration were going to kill people that they thought any response was justified? What, what led to that marginalizing? Well, they, they, I think what you just said, at least that is true. I mean, I do think that they were sincere in their belief that the lockdowns were necessary to save life. I think they were wrong in that belief, but I do believe that they thought that. I have to say, I, th- I don't think that's a sufficient explanation. I think that you need more than that. And I think this, now this is speculation, so I just, you know, please push back if you don't, if you think I'm saying something not right. But like my, my, I, my, I think that the same people were very closely involved with the funding of the of the Wuhan labs. If you look back from January and February 2020 in FOIA emails, there's a concerted effort by them essentially to cover up the possibility that this that the that the virus itself leaked out of this lab. And then famously Tony Fauci attacked Rand Paul in the well of the Senate to try to cover up the idea that the National Institute of Health and his agency, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, had played a role in funding the research that may have uh, in the Wuhan lab in these Chinese labs that that may have led to the virus itself. Now, I don't know for certain that that did do that, but I very strongly suspect that Tony Fauci and Francis Collins thought that their funding may have played a role in it, and certainly they were very concerned that there would be a public perception that people would think that their funding choices of the Wuhan lab may have led to the, the the virus spreading. And so they felt guilty about this under yes. this theory, and they wanted to take the strongest possible action to inoculate the, themselves the, against blame. They thought they opened Pandora's box, and they wanted to do everything they possibly could to close it. And they're not actually fun. They're not actually fundamentally epidemiologists. I mean, that's not their formal training, either of them. And they don't. They don't really have any deep understanding of the social structures of society. They don't have any social science training either. And so, for them, this mechanical idea of a lockdown to close down 
Pandora's box that they may they they may have also been responsible for opening might have must have been irre- irresistible. And then you know three fringe epidemiologists come along and you know they just they 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 figure that uh, it was entirely reasonable to destroy the careers of these three fringe epidemiologists who were trying to ruin their perfect policy. Let's talk about the vaccine. There has, as a result of much that we've talked about, been a, a deserved diminishment in trust in those who claim to be the arbiters of truth, those who wield authority, those who would explicitly in some cases conflate themselves with science per se. But there is a difference, at least in my view, between that sort of skepticism between an opposition to government mandates and lockdowns and disdain for a vaccine that I think worked really well. And yet, especially on the political right, although it's also there on the left with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and others, these two ideas have, to some extent, been conflated, have they not? I mean, the vaccine from my perspective, was the great scientific success story of COVID-19. What do you think? I mean, I think just to, to uh, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. So um, let, let's just stay focused on the vaccines, the science around the vaccines sure. uh, as a prerequisite. And then, then we'll talk about like the broader skepticism about science generally and to the extent to which it's earned, the extent to which, how we can might get it back. The vaccine clinical trials, when they were released in December of 2020, looked like an absolute triumph, 95% protection against the disease, right? But if you look carefully at the trial, it had at its, as its clinical endpoint protection against symptomatic infection. Symptomatic infection is important, right? You don't want to get, the, you don't want to get COVID and get symptoms. But there's a lot of people in, in the Santa Clara study, it was 40% of the population, who had COVID and have no symptoms that still could spread the disease. The trials didn't check to see if the vaccine blocked disease transmission. The trials didn't check to see if it blocked all infections. It only checked to see if it blocked symptomatic infections. The trial also didn't check to see if it blocked you from dying if you get the disease. So in December of 2020, what we knew was we have a vaccine that for two months stop you from getting symptomatically infected. My reaction to that trial was to write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Sinatra Gupta saying, look, this is a perfect tool for focused protection of vulnerable people. Because if it protects against symptomatic disease, then it should, ipso facto, protect against you know, death from that, that disease. You can't really die from COVID if you don't have symptoms, right? But I, didn't, I couldn't tell from the trial whether it would, would have any durable protection against any, all infections. And certainly you couldn't, I couldn't tell from the trial whether it had protection against getting infected and spreading the disease. So it seemed to me that we knew enough to recommend the vaccine for use for in, in, uh, against dying from COVID. So, and therefore you should, I thought, recommend that high-risk people be prioritized with the vaccine, older people specifically. But you should not advocate f- that uh, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the population get vaccinated on the idea that if that happens, then the disease effectively will go away. 
official public health, including Tony Fauci, went in that in the in the in the direction of herd immunity through the vaccine. In the absence of actual trial evidence that says that it would work. They made confident assertions. Rochelle Walensky did this. Francis, uh, Tony Fauci did this. Uh, and, and, uh, you, know, sort of you, you saw very prominent doctors in media do this over and over again. Most famously, uh, uh, not a doctor, but uh, uh, Rachel Maddow on, C, uh, on MSNBC did this. Promising effect that if you get the vaccine, you will not get COVID and you'll not spread the disease, you'll pose no risk to others. So when it became really clear, and that was, that was actually true pretty early on, that even heavily vaccinated populations were seeing disease spread, pretty sharp disease spread, that led to a lot of people to say, well, I don't, I don't, what, why are they lying to me about the vaccine? You know, I, for instance, I got the, the, vac- the vaccine in April of 2021, and then three months or four months later, I got COVID. A lot of people had that experience. So just to be clear here, the problem with the vaccine was the way that it was sold because this was a product that helped an enormous number of people even when they got COVID, but it didn't stop them getting COVID and it didn't stop transmission. And as such, the promises that were made were false, and many of the policies that were built around it, for example, vaccine mandates for travel, I remember having to go to England and show proof that I'd been vaccinated, presumably the rationale for that evaporates if I'm the only one benefiting from taking the shot. That's absolutely correct. And it's, it's even worse than that. People lost their jobs over those vaccine mandates. They were ostracized, made to feel as if they were second-class citizens. You know, you, if you're in New York City, if you were five years old for a long time, you couldn't go into New York City public libraries with your parents because you weren't vaccinated. The idea, essentially, they were, that, 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 peop- that was abroad in 2021, with messages amplified by the media and by, the, by governments all over the world, were that if you were unvaccinated, that somehow you were a social pariah. So it's utterly unsurprising to me to see a class of people who felt like they were lied to about the efficacy of the vaccine against disease uh, transmission, who felt that they were socially ostracized because of their decision not to get vaccinated, to then turn around and say, well, I don't trust the people that are telling me the vaccine would have protected me against severe disease. But it did protect against severe disease. That That was the benefit, right? That was the benefit. But you can understand, I think, Charlie, why someone would distrust yes. somebody who, who who essentially i mean I, I don't want to use the word lied but 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 that that, that had uh, had made statements far beyond the evidence and then pushed for policies that ostracize people that those same people then should turn around and say look i don't believe you well is is lies a good word i mean you, you say you don't want to use the word lies what did the people who spread that false information know because there is an argument that they knew that it didn't prevent transmission and they knew that it didn't prevent people getting COVID, but that if they told people that it did, then they'd be more likely to take it. And they thought that would on balance save lives. And they may actually have been right. So I don't think most of the people that did that were in doing what you just said. I think most of the people that did that didn't know they hadn't read the trial as carefully as I had and didn't know one way or the other whether it would. They just assumed that it would because other pro- vaccines that are in use wi- in widespread use do stop you from getting and spreading the disease. Like measles vaccine is, is basically lifetime protection against getting and spreading measles. 
Okay. And so they assumed, without having actually done the work of looking at the trials, they assumed that this vaccine would have that same effect. And so it's not exactly a lie. It's it's just irresponsible, right? So in medicine, you know, when you're a medical student, you face this moral dilemma and you have to come to terms with it. You you're standing in front of a patient and you're a medical student, you barely know anything, and the patient asks you a question and you have a white coat on. And then you have to ask yourself, do I do I make something up so I don't look stupid or do I just say I don't know? And honest doctors in that situation, learn to say, I don't know. And that works out better for the patient. It works out better for the doctors. I think what happened here in many, many people in public health is that they faced that ethical dilemma and instead decided that they would say something that they didn't know to be true rather than honestly saying, we don't know if it'll stop transmission. We shouldn't be developing policies on the assumption that it does until we do. Right, well, let me ask you this then, because I say this, as you know, as a as a great booster of the vaccine, which I think saved a huge number of lives. But did this lie at worst or, or laziness or assumption lead to a lot of people getting the vaccine that actually didn't need it? I was 36 when I got the vaccine. I was not really at risk statistically. Was that a bad cost-benefit analysis for me based on faulty information, or in the long run, does that not matter? Well, I think 36-year-old men, in fact, young men generally, there is a higher risk. There's a, there's a, substan- like a substantial risk. There's some controversy in the literature how substantial. I've seen numbers between 1 and 2,000. One in a, uh, even as low as even as high as one in a thousand. I've seen numbers as uh, as low as one in ten thousand. Elevated risk of myocarditis, which is inflammation of your heart after the vaccine. Uh, that's specifically for young men that that you have this high risk. Um, it, you don't see it so much for women. You don't. This is in, especially the mRNA vaccines. You don't see it so much for older men. And I think probably for most young men. Again, depends on your health condition. It's it's unlikely that you were going to die from COVID even without the vaccine. And there's very little evidence that the vaccine prevents you from getting COVID, of course. So you can get COVID, you can get myocarditis from, from COVID, but that means you're getting two draws at the myocarditis urn, if you will, or, or whatever, the slot machine, rather than just one. So I, I think that it you could certainly make a case that for most young, healthy young men, it probably wasn't wise to recommend the vaccine. All right, last vaccine question on this. Where do we go from here with the vaccine? Because I, I'm going to get the timing wrong. But it seems to me that eight to 10 months ago, I was reading pieces in the New York Times that predicted that we would absorb this vaccine into our schedule in the way that we have with flu, and that every year everyone would go out and they would get a, a jab. That doesn't seem to be happening now. Well, I mean, the uptake for that bivalent booster that they recommended in the winter was abysmally low. I mean, in in the teens or or twenties, I think, um, if you recommend a vaccine at scale and then eighty percent of the population just ignores you, that's that's the death knell of public health. Like that basically means that people aren't going to listen to you for a lot of other things, and you lose credibility. I don't see how this vaccine goes on the schedule like the way the flu vaccine does, unless there's substantially better evidence produced by drug companies that the vaccine is necessary for it to be on the schedule. 
And that would require a, a real large-scale randomized study in a, now, a modern now, but meaning like in 2023 with the population at large mostly already having had, had COVID and recovered. And so therefore, the marginal benefit of any additional vaccination vaccine doses is likely to be very, very low. It seems unlikely they could produce that, but I think that's the only way they could get it on the schedule. Because right now what they have is small-scale trials that show that you can produce antibodies if you get vaccinated for a short period of time. That's insufficient to convince most of the population to take it. How do we get back the trust in the public health establishment that obtained before COVID? And a second associated question, do we want to? Is it is it a worthwhile aim? If this is what the public health establishment is, should we instinctively mistrust them as a free people? Uh, let me answer that second question first and then, then maybe answer the first. The second question, I think the answer depends on what is the public health establishment, right? So for instance, I think the Swedish public health establishment is worthy of trust. They treated the population like adults and as a consequence, a very large fraction of the Swedish population trusts Swedish public health. If you have a trustworthy public health establishment that that tells the a population the truth, that doesn't seek to manipulate or propagandize the population, that seeks to work with the population on in conjunction with the science and is willing to say we don't we don't know when when we really don't know, that I think is absolutely worthy of of, of trust. And I think it's quite important for the health of the population to have a public health authority like that. So much of what we uh, take for granted in uh, civilization for, you know, lo- like sanitation, um, essential vaccines for children, huge numbers of things that we don't even see in public, that are, import- are function- important functions of public health. And I very strongly believe, you know, I've, I've devoted my career to working in public health for that reason. I think it's really important for the health of the population. But just to the other side of that is that the kind of public health authority that we saw during the pandemic in the United States and the UK and many other places is not worthy of trust and doesn't deserve to continue to exist in the form that it is. And I think um, the, 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 what's, what the pandemic has made clear to a very large fraction of the population is that uh, they shouldn't trust public health. So we're, we're at a policy conundrum. Like how do you get back that trust? I think the key thing is to become worthy of that trust. And I think the start of that is a honest accounting of the errors that public health made during the pandemic. You can't possibly regain trust until you do that. And so that means that there has to be something like uh, a after-action report, a, a, you know, like when the, a plane crashes, the, the uh, NTSB, this transportation board, federal transportation board comes and looks and says, okay, well, let's look at the black box. Let's see what happened. They're not it, mainly they're not aiming to point fingers. Mainly what they're trying to do is trying to figure out what reforms can they make so the planes, future planes don't crash. We need an honest commission like that, not run by the people that made these decisions, but by independent groups that say, look, uh, we're going we're to tell you the truth about what, what we find. I put together a document called the Norfolk Group document, along with uh, seven of my colleagues, where we lay out a blueprint for what such a commission would look like. We have 80 pages of questions related to, you know, that's many of the, the topics we discussed here. I think if you a- honestly answer the questions, a lot of the people in public health, many of them who made these decisions may lose their reputation, but that's much less important than restoring public trust. 
We have to restore public health, put it in a place where it's worthy of trust because its functions are too important to destroy. We talked a lot about what the public health establishment got wrong. What did it get right? Aside from the vaccine, what would you put in a report and recommend for next time? <laughs> it's hard because I think, uh, again, other than the vaccines, I don't, I don't see a lot that it got right. Uh, I think eventually public health did figure out that older people were, were really at higher risk. So for instance, that mistake that may, were, was made by Cuomo and others early in the pandemic of sending COVID infection patients back to nursing homes, that got corrected uh, by, you know, I don't know, like summer of 2020. Um, there were other mistakes that the that that, that public health made that that it, it finally got, it did got, did get right. I think there were early, early on there were uh, protocols for treatment that were actually probably counterproductive. You remember the craze for getting ventilators, so that uh, you have a, we, the idea was that if you didn't have uh, enough ventilators to 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 put people on when they got COVID, that people would die for want of the ventilators. And it turned out that people were being a little overly aggressive with the ventilator protocols. And by April or May 2020, that had started, that had reversed. And so like there was a lot of like learning about how to manage patients that happened uh, and were, that happened over the course of the pandemic that I think actually was quite good. I don't think it was rapid enough for my taste. I think that, for instance, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease should have invested in large-scale randomized studies of relatively inexpensive drugs, including drugs like hydroxychloroquine, but also uh, ivermectin, um, uh, you know, uh, like fluvoxamine, metformin, and others. If we'd had those studies early in the pandemic, two things would have happened. One, it would have it, we would have an answer. Like we would have found, for instance, the hydroxychloroquine probably didn't work, and that would have depoliticized it because it was just a, would have just been a study that that led to that early in the pandemic. And then two, we would have learned things that did work and saved a lot of lives, right? So, for instance, in the UK there was the recovery trial that established that dexamethasone works in hospital settings to reduce the likelihood of, of cytokine storms and reduce the amount of, of, of the likelihood of death in a hospital. That was ha that happened by July of 2020. It's a very cheap drug, and that happened in the UK. In the US, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease went all in on the vaccines and on remdesivir, but uh, which is a, a on patent drug, but spent very little money and effort in 2020 to uh, do, to run high quality evaluations of randomized trials of these other cheap drugs, and that was, a, I think, a, a, a big mistake. But they eventually did. I think it went, but they had uh, these active trials that 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 they eventually reported out. Uh, but by then, it was really kind of too too you know too little too late, right? So by 20, like the the goal was that the active trials would report out by 2023 uh, what whether these some of these cheap drugs worked. But why did it take so long? It really shouldn't have. All right, last question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Do you think that what we saw during the pandemic is indicative of a public health establishment that cannot be and will not be reformed and that that establishment will spend the next 10 years trying to retcon its behavior and convince everyone that it got it right or do you think there is going to be a groundswell that leads to change or somewhere in the middle? Uh, at, at this point, I, 
I don't see anything organic within the nat- the public health establishment that, that sh- indicates to me that they're taking their their as they made seriously. Uh, frankly, they're giving themselves awards for the pandemic management, the success of the pandemic management. They're writing reports that are effectively whitewashes. But I don't think that it, this kind of situation can hold forever. The damage done to the population at large, the obvious fact that they failed to protect older people from COVID, the fact that uh, the, the, the tremendous numbers of people were harmed by the policies themselves, including their kids, uh, by the school closures and whatnot, that's going to have to have some kind of consequence. You know, if you'd asked me, Charlie, before the pandemic, what kind of consequences I would have liked to see. I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist. I would have liked to see that science correct itself through data. But I, at this point, I don't see how you get to the kind of, of honest evaluation we need until there's a political consequence for having adopted some of these policies. And so I think it hangs in the balance. I don't know the answer, what's gonna, what it's going to look like, but there are a few places where there have been some political consequences and where they have, have said, okay, these lockdown policies were a mistake. Right? So I'll give you an example. is Alberta, Canada, where Danielle Smith essentially displaced a pro-lockdown conservative, uh, Jason Kenney, and then won, real, won, won election against, uh, against the, the more liberal NDP party saying that the lockdowns were a mistake, whereas the NDP essentially were pro-lockdown. So you have you you do have some select places where this kind of political sort of ramifications of these errors have been, have been have been felt, but in the United States, I think that hangs in the balance. All right, Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Thank you to the winemakers of Italy for all they do for the cause. And thank you to you for listening. We will see you next week.